Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe Podcast. My friends, Mandalorian is done, Bad Batch is done, and Star Wars fans across the galaxies are asking, what next? We have a lot of new content coming. Uh, you probably heard an episode we recently released about all the things coming at Celebration. And for those of you who are not the most, I have watched everything and read every comic and read every book and read the back of every single action figure and video game that's ever been out there, some people have questions about, well, what do I need to know about what's coming next? And what are the stories and how does it all connect and things like that? Uh, myself and Pete Wright, who is one of the founders of the True Story FM podcast, Podcast network that uh, this and my superhero ethics podcast are becoming a part of. So this is kind of a fun way to inaugurate that. Has some questions for me, and we're going to discuss them right here on this podcast, along with some listener questions that are coming in. Because, and this is some pretty big news. One of the things that happens on True Story FM is that a lot of the things get live streamed. So there is a strong possibility that we're going back to live streaming these episodes. That might be for patrons members only. We're not sure yet. A lot of things still to figure out. That is not one of the questions we will be exploring, but today we will be exploring what's happening in the Star Wars universe, why do I only have a three-pack if I worked out a lot, and is Pete a direct descendant of the people who taught us how to fly? All that and more after commercial break. We have no control over. Outstanding. Welcome back. This is Matthew Fox, your host, they them pronouns. As I said, I'm joined by Pete Wright. Uh, Pete, you're a man of so many titles and so many accomplishments, most of which I don't remember. I mean, just don't have the ability to run off myself. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Um, you know, there's there's actually precious little to say. I'm a, one of the founders of True Story <laughs> FM. Uh, started podcasting back in 2006. So I've been doing this a very, very long time. Many, many shows. <clears throat> Most of the shows that I do are uh, are in somehow related to film and pop culture. And our longest running show is the Next Real Film podcast, uh, which we've been, we've been talking about consistently week over week over week uh, about movies and and how they connect with people uh, with my co-host and partner, uh, Andy Nelson. Um, he is um, he is my partner at True Story FM, and, and we kind of run the show together. So um, eager to talk about Star Wars today. Awesome. Now, for anybody who does recognize Pete's voice in connection to myself, one of the podcasts that they run is the Marvel Movie Minute, which myself, along with a lot of other uh People who have been on this podcast and other and the Stranded Panda podcast, such as Matt Carroll, Ashley Coffin, Paul Hoppy, Will Freeland, have all been guests on. Yes. So, uh, and that's where I first connected with Pete, and I'm really excited to have you on. So, Pete, why don't you just talk a little bit about where you kind of are as a Star Wars fan now, um, in terms of what's the stuff that you've been following, what's the stuff you haven't been following, all that kind of thing. Because well, we're going to kind of use you as the the audience yeah. surrogate today, in terms of like, let's get caught up. Here's the here my so I'm uh, you know I'm a, a man of a certain age, and so. So my first like significant cinematic experience was uh, episode four, A New Hope, with my Uncle Tim. Yep. Shout out to Uncle Tim. Um, I, I I don't think my parents would have taken me to the movie, but Tim uh, was a, a younger man at the time and had no qualms about introducing a man of my age to Star Wars. And it has been <laughs> uh, central to kind of my vision of what science fiction fantasy could be since I was Mm. very, very young. Um, I am a huge fan of most of the movies. um, And 
frankly, I've aged into two of the three prequels. I just can't watch the first one. I cannot stand midi-chlorians <laughs> to the point That's that it fair. makes me shake and my skin starts to tingle. Like, I feel like that is a that is a <laughs> ridiculous bastardization of, of what Star Wars was to me. So don't want to yuck anybody's mm-hmm. yum. If you're a big midi-chlorian <clears throat> head, that's fine. But the sooner we could move away from midi-chlorians, the better. Um, the other two, the the political uh, uh, intrigue, the the machinations of the empire, and the second two uh, prequels, the and and even the sort of reboots, like even the JJ Abrams, I can find stuff to love about all three of the yeah. of the movies that come after the the principal four, five, and six. Uh, even though I feel like as a trio, they are chaotic and disconnected in many ways. I find a lot that I can still connect to and and love. And I, mm-hmm. I have uh, two of my dear childhood friends were actually they won the Force for Change uh, contest and were in the Force Awakens uh, in the the scene on in the gambling hall where we, uh, you know, oh, they're, nice. they're in the background. They got all the makeup. They got to go to London and and uh, hang out with J.J. Abrams and crew. And so, um, you know, there's just a lot of fun. So that all that it, that's my movie experience. At the end of the movies, I'm so done with Skywalker. Like, I'm done with the Skywalker yeah. saga. I really am finished with that. And here we are in what have to be the halcyon days of Star Wars with Disney Plus and what they're doing on the small screen. Because I find this stuff to be absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And widely, I, I think people like it. But... I am eager for the point that Star Wars transcends the Skywalker saga more completely, more thoroughly, and we're just this Star Wars embraces the broad new galaxy. So that's that's yeah. kind of where we are. And I, I just finished, I mean last night, season two of The Bad Batch for our conversation here. Oh my God. Uh, huge fan of, <laughs> yep. of Andor, one of my favorite things that Star Wars has ever done. And of course, Mandalorian season three. Uh, Pedro Pascal can read me bedtime stories so (laughs) i i have to say there was a point in time where for a couple of weeks mandalorian was coming out at the same time that the last of us was coming out and i think just if there was any doubt that pedro pascal is the one to adopt a wayward child and take them to their destiny um it is clearly like well and then they did the snl he did the snl spoof for it did you see him standing up yes mario kart i want to see that the hbo dark version of mario kart i want to see it that whole episode was fantastic but when they do the high school where they say you know that he's he's daddy i just died like that was so mm-hmm. good that he has. I, I watched him on um, uh, the. Uh, it's a British talk show. He was on. And he was asked like, "Why? Uh, what do you think of all this?" And he's just like, "I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. I really, legitimately don't know how this has happened to me and and why people are saying the things they do about me." But uh, which is the I, best I kind don't... of fandom. I don't know if the TV folks will do this, but the possibility that he might be nominated for three different Emmys in the same year yeah. for uh, Last Last of Us, I think, is the yeah. one where he would most clearly deserve it. Mando, I think, is a possibility, but also for best actor in a comedy, like a single episode comedy yeah. sketch show is also a category. Yeah. So he could win for that. Well. I'm so glad to hear more of that background. And I, I, let me, you and I actually are grounded in very similar ways. I am not quite of your same age, but very similar in that for me, my first movie experience what, that I remember was Return of the Jedi okay. only a couple of years sure. later. Uh, my mother likes to say that it is 
is her responsibility that I was uh, a Star Wars fan to begin with because new <laughs> according to some politically, New Hope is the first movie I ever saw because she was about six months pregnant <laughs> when she went in to see A New Hope. Um, I won't. I will skirt those political conversations. I think most people know I'm fairly on the left, but the point is yes that I I've grown up with those movies. With both A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, I literally don't remember a time when I hadn't seen them. Mm-hmm. But my first cinematog- cinemagraphic memory is sitting in a theater feeling literally pushed back into my seat by the crash of noise uh, when the, the opening scroll yeah. to Return of the Jedi begins. Uh, I will also say this will probably come out after this happens. But the day we're recording this, in just a few days, Pete, I'm sure you know about this, uh, but anyone who's listening on YouTube, Return of the Jedi is coming back to theaters for the 40th anniversary. Uh, I have my tickets. I'm really excited to go have that experience again. It probably won't be quite as loud to 45-year-old me as it was to (laughs) 6-year-old me or 5-year-old me. Um, But I'm definitely looking forward to that. The other thing that I'll say is... uh, and, and just to give you the little plug, uh, over on, I think it was on True Story, uh, sorry, I be, here's why I do like to edit these things. <laughs> I believe it was on the Next Real podcast, uh, you and Andy actually did review, you guys found copies of the original theatrical 1970s, 1980s releases of the original trilogy movies and did reviews of yes. them. And I have I had them on Betamax, which I think is kind of version like 2.0. And then like we're now on like version 6.0 with all the, the things. But it's, a, it's, it's great to listen to you two as fans who grew up with these movies, but also talking about those original cuts. Well, I appreciate that. And I would just I, I would just augment a little bit. What we found was specifically the Harmy Despecialized version, which is a really special mm. fan edit by people who know how to make movies and do special effects and they took every single version of that has ever been released of each of these movies and they incorporated anywhere the effects had been upgraded from the original movie they incorporated it back into the original movie so blasters explosions those kinds of things are Mm -hmm. in there but Han shoots first uh, there are. There's no additional tour of Moss Eisley. Like all of the stuff mm-hmm. that wasn't in the original theatrical cut, they did not add back. So they really just oh, okay. remastered, upgraded what we got in the original movie, and remastered the sound. And it's extraordinary. And you can get it. Mm. Just search for Harmy Despecialized. You can download it. it's on. Like they'll give you a BitTorrent link, and you can download all three of them. And they're extraordinary. They're extraordinary. Like it's just. I, I just. I get excited just talking about it. The fact that these things exist is a huge. Gift. That's awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you corrected me because I will say there's a certain part of me that has very fond memories of the TIE fighters in the first Death Star attack run jerking around the screen yes. as you can pretty clearly see the person holding it. And I miss that. And so knowing I wouldn't see that. Yeah. Like, they that did clean effect, up the mat lines for sure. You know, they cleaned okay. up all of those things. But but I'll tell you, in Return of the Jedi, you know the scene I'm talking about, the flight into the Death Star where all of the all the TIEs come out yep. and that, like, that fractal is extraordinary it's just beautiful in this version it's the best and and they give me back my yub nub yeah (laughs) they give me back my yub nub right that's that's what i care about okay it's it is as it was it is as it was awesome 
Although I am right, on the, well, I'm in the getting... boat. I like that final song. I like the updated song. <laughs> yeah. That's that's I that's fair. That's fair. Maybe it was because I was a little bit younger yeah. than you were when I first saw Yub Nub. But that is to me. I mean, I could still sing I it. Like I still know that, all the but, words. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, anyway, so let's talk more about the yeah. this actual topic we're bringing up, and just to give me a little bit more of your background. So you have seen the kind of Disney era Star Wars television. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any of the Clone Wars or Star Wars Rebels or any of those shows? Yes, and uh, so I've I've done them all. Um, Clone Wars and Rebels, I I think both suffer the same challenges in their first season. I am I am one of those mm-hmm. people that that believes that the first seasons of both of those shows were a bit of a slog and particularly in the boat of, of Rebels felt like my first Star Wars, right? It it was like it it felt mm-hmm. like the animation style everything had changed to to something that was so um effectively just youthful and childlike, which is great and exuberant and I love that it existed like that. But it, they weren't really it wasn't really grabbing me. So I took a long break in Rebels and yeah. and watched that first season and then kind of put it away. I came back to it very recently and wa- and just binge the rest of it, and it it did the same thing that Clone Wars did. It leads up to its very best season and its most mature storylines in the last sort of two seasons of it. Uh, Clone Wars, season seven of Clone Wars is the most extraordinary Star Wars that there has been. Uh, it is yeah. just incredible storytelling and uh, brings us into sort of the reality of these characters that feels like, even though I'm watching an animated show, it feels like these people are as alive and well as I could ever have experienced them. Like, I could reach out and touch them. It was it was really wonderful. I think the the, the Favreau-Filoni era of Star Wars is is extraordinary. I think they're at, they're at just peak storytelling, yeah. and I'm, I'm really thrilled with it. So, um, big fan. And this is where I am so curious for you to kind of pull out the crystal ball because where things line up where we have Clone Wars young Ahsoka becoming adult Ahsoka in the upcoming live series we have Ezra Bridger young Ezra Bridger maturing into adulthood and disappearing Mm -hmm. at the end of Bad Batch and they're in the same sort of timeline and of course we have uh, you know we We've got, um, you know, where do they line up with, um, right. you know, all the upcoming other properties and Thrawn and all of those things. So I'm, my head is sure. exploding. Well, let me first just say here, so we will be spoiling everything that has happened in both the Clone Wars TV show and in Rebels TV show. And um, hopefully you're, if you're listening to this, either you've seen those or you're okay being spoiled on them. I, or perhaps even you've just listened to all of our coverage of those. Things. You've been spoiled if you've um, been listening to this show for sure. As has been pointed out, the the last episode of our Clone Wars coverage has gone missing somewhere. The gods of podcasts have eaten that episode, so myself uh, and a few others will be re-recording on the final arc of the Clone Wars. That should go up sometime in the next month or two. Also. Uh, Big news, uh, I, it looks like we are going to be able to finish our Rebels coverage because we had to stop around season three because so much new stuff came out. But we will be going back to doing episode-by-episode coverage of Rebels to finish that before Ahsoka. So if you don't want to be spoiled on that, if you want to hit pause now and come back, that's totally fair. But uh, we will be kind of talking about all those things. Well, um, But trust me, even if you hear, hear us spoil it, there's still so much yeah. more to see I, that I promise is worthwhile. Well, and I feel like uh, I, I feel like that part of the 
uh, final season of, of Clone Wars, but it, absolutely, well, that's God's a podcast. Speak up, right? Why? How did that go missing? Yeah. I'm glad you're going to Taylor Swift that and do a, uh, <laughs> a an updated version of it. But if anything deserves an episode by episode coverage, it's that last season of the Bad Batch. I think it was it was really really good. Uh, and those characters, um, uh, no, of the bad. Didn't you say you're going to do episode by episode of the Bad Batch? Oh, we did do that. That we have. Oh, done. you have done that. Okay, all right. Yeah. So you're doing the Clone Wars episode by episode. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, so so let me let me the Clone Wars uh, on the the Ethical Panda website, and now I believe by the time you listen to us, also the uh, True Story yep. FM website, you will find we have done F, we have done episode. We, well, we often would do like two or three episodes at a time, just because I, yes. I, I think the Clone Wars often. Like the Clone Wars just has a, a lot of incredibly good episodes and a lot of filler. I think I think the word filler gets yeah. used far too often these days, but I think it does fit for the Clone Wars. Um, uh, we did episode, we did coverage of that, including the final season. We really did epi- literally episode by episode because they, they were so good. The epi- our coverage of the last episode of the Clone Wars season seven has gone missing somehow. So we're going to re-record on Good. the last arc, which is the last four episodes, the Siege of Mandalore, yeah. which, as I will talk about, is important. Ties in quite a lot to the events of Mandalorian season seven. Yes, uh, season two, season three. Wow. <laughs> um, we have also done uh, episode by episode, or at times arc by arc, coverage of Rebels which we had to stop, I believe, two-thirds of the way through season three because so many new shows kept coming up and then other things happened with family and sickness and things like that. So that's what we'll be recontinuing. Okay. So with all that, um, let me actually first ask you this question because I think it's – here's the parallel that I'm seeing because – I agree with you that I'm fairly done with the Skywalker saga. Um, Rey is a Skywalker. For me, I'm, I'm perfectly fine about that, although I don't like a lot of the things that happened to her character in Rise of Skywalker, but that's another story entirely. But I'm very much done with her character. And there's a part of me that is looking forward to... And I'm, very much, I'm sorry, I'm not done with her character. I'm very much done with the Skywalkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I one of the things that I, I'm definitely looking forward to some stories that are set in a completely different era without any of these characters being mentioned, and we're going to be getting that. Uh, the other thing, though, that I'm finding is that, um, I like you, I did not grow up with the prequels. And I, I'm sure that our parents and people of that generation rolled their eyes at a lot of the things in the original movies that we loved. Mm-hmm. In the same way, I think I found a lot of the prequels kind of hard to watch, because I wasn't watching them as a younger person, and maybe I was devoid of all joy. You can yell at me at that. Um, but I found that the Clone Wars uh, really filled in some of the gaps and made some of the things in the prequels make a lot more sense. And when I've gone back and watched the prequels since then, they make a lot more sense. One of the things I think that made the sequels hard for some people is that we all of a sudden had, oh, yeah, the New Republic is falling apart and Luke is angry and bitter and, and all this stuff that wasn't ever really explained to us. And what I'm in finding, I think it's something we'll be talking about, but I'm curious if you're getting this feeling just from what you've seen, that Bad Batch and Mandalorian are both kind of helping to fill in some of the gaps of how do we get to a place where 
the New Republic is so weak that all these people are joining the First Order and that the New Republic won't even fight the First Order. Like, are you finding that those shows are helping to fill in some of the gaps and make the sequels make more sense for you? Well, I think so. Um, and and I think that is a central question, right? Is that it, because right. where where the where power is lost is on the fringes. And that's why this this sort of space Western Mandalorian and it's why, you know, dealing with the story of Mandalore <clears throat> at the edges of of power uh, it does I think set us up for the uh, uh, the the making the connection to the first order be- rising to power right that there is a right. uh, there is going to be a void some void that has to be filled politically militarily and and culturally and I think that's what yeah. we need that's what we need to get to. I feel like the 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 workaday uh, adventures that were going on, visiting Mandalore after its dis, after its ultimate sort of destruction quote destruction, um, is it, it's all fine. But the larger story is we're looking at where the void is being created right now, and we're looking at the fringes right. reclaiming power, and that does nothing but help the tra- making the transition to the first order. Yeah. Definitely. So so let's get into that, and let's start with the story of Ahsoka, because I think that's one of the ones that is the most interesting to people, especially folks who haven't necessarily caught up with all the stuff. So let me kind of give a, a brief summary of the different parts of Ahsoka's story, and, and then we can ask kind of questions and talk about that yeah. and then move on to, to the next thing, but to help set up her show. So Ahsoka is introduced to us in the TV show uh, The Clone Wars, I think actually in the movie The Clone Wars, mm-hmm. um, where she where not only is Anakin a now a Jedi Knight instead of just being a Padawan, but he is supposed to be now he is supposed to take on a Padawan of his own. And the original idea for her character was George Lucas wanted uh, the Clone Wars was definitely aimed at a much younger audience, the movie especially, but even so the show originally. But I, I think. The, uh, my my colleague Paul pointed out that to some extent the show grows because the audience of the show is growing. Hundred um, percent. But also I think because George Lucas took his hands off mm-hmm. and Filoni was able to be like, no, let's do some real storytelling yeah. here. Um, but so Ahsoka then becomes a very fundamental part of us learning about what the Jedi were like and us seeing other sides of Anakin. And uh, because you get and because one of the things you get to see is that. In the show, I think it really helps to fill in some of the gaps about Anakin and who he was and why he fell, and that a lot of the reason why he fell was because he had compassion. He had attachment. He had all of these feelings for the clones that a lot of the other Jedis knew they weren't supposed to have. And um, and that, that I, I'm greatly simplifying things there. I just got a whole bunch of angry emails just by that one <laughs> sentence. Uh, hopefully you know what I mean there. It's not that they don't have feelings, but that they were better able. He, you know, he was the one who would say, "I, I am going to risk everything to to rescue my droid, or to rescue my Padme, or to rescue my my Padawan." Mm-hmm. And so Ahsoka is put in this fascinating position for most of the show, in which she is both being taught by Anakin, but also being taught by the whole rest of the Jedi. And so she's often the one who's sort of being like, "Master." referring to Anakin, like, I think you're going too far. And that she sometimes sides with him and sometimes doesn't. Right. Um, she is very close to Anakin. She, I think it is pretty clearly implied, knows about Anakin and Padme, or at least has some big suspicions about the two of them. And in one of the most important arcs for her, uh, in season five, I believe, uh, in, in one of the other arcs, there's another Jedi Padawan 
who winds up setting off a bomb in the Jedi temple and, and doing some other harmful things. And it's because she's one of the ones who sees the pro- she sees that the Jedi are becoming corrupted, that they are falling to the dark side, and and uh, that Palpatine is pulling all the strings and all the hypocrisy and wrongness of it all. It's a whole beautiful story arc of its own that's definitely worth checking out or check out our episodes about it on Star Wars Universe podcast. Um, but the point is that as a part of that process, Ahsoka gets wrongly accused, and. Because of the intricacies of the political system in which the uh, the Jedi are not allowed to investigate themselves, uh, the only way she can stand in a civilian court is if they kick her out of the Jedi. Um, and, and that is also another one of the most fascinating arcs in the show and most ethically complex because on the one hand, you're like, why the Jedi are so good? Why can't they take care of this? And then you think about... The Jedi are the law enforcement of their time and place. How do we feel about law enforcement in investigating their own mm-hmm. and civilian oversight or, or the military, if you want to see there was military, not law enforcement? Anyway, point is, she gets kicked out of the Jedi. And by the end of those episodes, she she has seen that um, uh, they have seen that it wasn't her. Anakin begs her to come back, but she still says, no, I can't come back. I can't. I, I've seen too much. At this point, we get uh, a couple of different versions of what happens to her story next. Tales of the Jedi uh, tells a version of her story. Uh, the novel Ahsoka also tells a version of her story. Uh, the novel by E.K. Jo- uh, believes by E.K. Johnson. Um, they mostly overlap, although the Tales of the Jedi changes some details from the book, um, which I should say is an interesting overall thing as part of this. Unlike things like MCU and the like, Disney is saying that the books that are coming out right now are 100% canon. Any new books. Any new books that are coming out are 100% canon. Old books are being mined Mm -hmm. for some of their story details. We'll get to that in a second. Um, But also then you have a problem of, in terms of barrier of entry, the number of people who see things on screen versus the number of people who read them is always going to be vastly different. So Tales of the Jedi does change some details of her story. Most importantly, it erases uh, a queer character that a lot of people really loved, and so that's there's definitely some hollow blue about yeah. that that I understand why people are concerned and, and join them. But the, the main point is she defeats uh, a Sith Inquisitor, one of the people who at that this point is... Um, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. Give me give me two seconds to remember all the details here. <laughs> um, no, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm going to back all this up. I'm wrong. Here's why there's so much to take, yeah. to take in. And I'm going to try not to give you everything and please, Pete, jump in with questions. Um... Because I'm wrong. The, the next time we see her then, we, we get some snippets of her story and that she's kind of off on her own and she winds up, con, you know, cut, she becomes kind of like an A-team. You know, she's been, she's on the run, but when she finds people in need, she's going to help them. Yeah. Um, this is still in, and, uh, in Clone Wars that we're talking about here. This is still in the Clone yeah. Wars era. Yes. So before the events of the third movie, right. Revenge of the Sith. And then eventually she gets to a place where um, Bo-Katan and the uh, the people who are on Mandalore have a problem in that Darth Maul has taken over Mandalore. And these are the events of the seventh season mm-hmm. of Clone Wars. I'm not going to give a full summary by any means. But she, uh, through various circumstances, both Ahsoka and Obi-Wan and Anakin have all been asked to go help rescue Mandalore from Darth Maul. During the course of their journey to Mandalore... Obi-Wan and Anakin get the news of 
the Chancellor has just been kidnapped. You need to come back to uh, Coruscant as soon as possible to help deal with this. Um, we then get into the question of why does space travel... Space travel goes at the speed of plot throughout yes. Star Wars. It's one of the biggest problems in the universe. The speed of plot is very fast, Matthew. It's very well, fast. It's very, it's very fast when it needs yes. to be, but it's also sometimes very slow. Yes. Um, it's exactly the speed it needs to be for the plot. Yes, it's in it parsecs. Yeah. Yeah, also. But the point of this all being, this is why Ahsoka is not with Anakin when he falls to the dark side. And, and you get to see her kind of understanding in the force that some tragedy has happened, that she suspects something has happened. Uh, she gets to be a part of defeating Darth Maul. Uh, and, and, and we're trying hard not to give the moment-by-moment -moment recap of sure. all that, but I'll just say, in terms of the growth of the Clone Wars TV show... Season one, as you pointed out, the animation is pretty standard, pretty weak. It looks like basic video game animation. By episode seven, there's a lightsaber duel between Ahsoka and Darth Maul, where they actually brought back Ray Park, the person who, who did all the stunts and who played Darth Maul originally, brought in another amazing stunt person, ha filmed them live action having this incredible lightsaber battle, and then used motion capture to transfer that into animation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's in the top three lightsaber battles in all it's of Star Wars. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's, You're absolutely right. It's incredible. It, it, is, it breaks um, your brain because, too, just to say, there are a number of moments in, the, in these animated shows that do this where you know it's real physics that you're looking at, but it's yeah. animated, and so you can't make sense of it. Yeah. yeah. And just in terms of her growth as a character, showing that she's no longer a Jedi, there's one great moment where... Uh, after Order 66 has happened and the clones have taken over and she needs to escape and she's in desperate trouble, she realizes the best way to do this is to free Darth Maul and to kind of set him loose uh, to cause a distraction. Mm -hmm. And uh, she does this and he's totally surprised and I was like, well, okay, I'll do what I can. Can I have my lightsaber back? And she says to him, I'm not, she says to him, I'm not rooting for you. Which is, it's a brilliant line, but if you think about it, it's so not a Jedi concept. Mm -hmm. And it's just a wonderful moment of how far she's come from the Jedi. Anyway, I'm doing much too much plot summary. I apologize. But I'll move on fast. You know, I just want to throw in there that there is this, there, Ahsoka is a really interesting uh, character that exists. And I would say the same with Ezra Bridger from Bad Batch that exists in the space between, uh, I, I guess there's a... <laughs> There's the the empathy hubris scale <laughs> like where mm -hmm. Jedi are like part the force is such an allegory for empathy and being able to wield the force for good is d demonstrating your um, your empathic light. Right. Like that you understand yeah. the world around you and you can relate to it. And the further one falls from empathy, the further one falls into the trap of hubris that not only can you see the world, but you can manipulate it. That's where you. Uh, you, we get to chart Anakin's fall. And I think yeah. Ahsoka and Ezra Bridger are these two characters that, that have mined a place between the two like yeah. discrete points. And that's the story that I think is so fascinating. And when you talk about it from an ethical perspective, her choices that aren't wholly evil, they aren't wholly motivated from, you know, hubris are manipulating the universe in the mask of those who do. Yeah, I think, I mean, for those who know D&D, &D, the Jedi are lawful yes. good for the most part. She's not lawful good. Certain, She's neutral, neutral good, good or chaotic, chaotic good. good, right. And and occasionally willing to use, and, and, and we talked about Ezra, the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, let me just quick finish Please, the Ahsoka yeah. stuff. And the, that, but no, but I think that's such a good point because I think 
to me, that's why I'm so interested in the new Ray movies and the rebuilding the Jedi. Um, but anyway, so we see her do all that. Uh, then, and, and so the question then becomes, okay, so why isn't she fighting in the wars? So I'm going just through her story chronologically. In Rebels, it, we, Rebels, by the way, takes place after Revenge of the Sith, mm-hmm. during the Imperial period. Uh, Rebels starts five years before Luke attacks the Death Star and ends kind of like a month before Rogue One. And it really is about the birth of the Rebellion or, or that portion of the Rebellion. It, like it and Andor are very much part of the same story. Uh, but in it, it is revealed that Ahsoka has been hanging out all of this time um, and that she... Uh, no, so again... I'm sorry, folks. But there's a lot. Uh, so yeah, we don't actually have... Yeah, we don't actually have an explanation for what she was doing during the Galactic... Uh, no, I keep confusing myself. I apologize. I might edit this out. I might let you laugh at me. So anyway, so during this Imperial period, she's doing all this stuff kind of behind the scenes. We don't really know many of the details. The Book of Ahsoka gives us a lot more of that story, as does Tales of the Jedi. At some point, she defeats a Sith Inquisitor, who are these people who are trying to hunt down the last of the Jedi. And um, she takes their lightsabers and, and remakes them. And for anyone who's interested in Kyber Core lore, the Kyber Crystal lore, uh, the, the Kyber Crystals are the heart of the lightsaber. Dark side lightsabers are red because they've taken one of those crystals and corrupted it. And be, often because they've killed a Jedi to do it. Mm-hmm. And there's some really gruesome ways in which that happens. And then you can rescue those Kyber Crystals and turn them back and thus they become white which is why Ahsoka's lightsabers are white in this new chapter. So she's for a while kind of a spy and uh, a fulcrum. She's helping the new growing rebellion. She eventually reveals herself and is helping the rebellion quite a lot Mm -hmm. uh, and is actively going on missions with them. And she finds Rex, who has survived, and it's it's wonderful. Some of the best parts of her story are told in Rebels uh, until we get to this epic confrontation that she has with Darth Vader. And I think this, again, is some of the best Star Wars I've ever seen. She's basically trying to rescue Anakin Skywalker. And in in a wonderful collection of dialogue that, again, is to this, she's not really a Jedi anymore. Uh, he says, no, I have killed Anakin Skywalker. It's only me. And she says, if Anakin is dead, I will avenge him. Vader says, vengeance is not the Jedi way. She raises her lightsaber, says, I am no Jedi, and charges. There we go. There we go. Yeah. What what was your what was your take kind of on that scene right there? Well, I first of all, it it's it's lovely to introduce characters that aren't Lucas White Hat Black Hat, right? That that is the that is a reason to cheer for Ahsoka, and it's what makes Moral her greatness, like yeah. uh, more than the fact that we have uh, you know another new story with a uh, a principled uh, woman of color and in the the center of the of the live action that is coming for us, which is amazing and it's great, but also it's a great character. It is a great mm-hmm. great great character, and the fact that those two right we we have to talk about the fact that. That Ezra Bridger essentially rescues Ahsoka from that, yeah. from her own effort to avenge uh, using the tools of the Jedi and manipulating the tools of the Jedi for essentially ill, right? Like, like that whole finding the that that sort of middle place at the Jedi Temple and being able to reach through that back door and pull her out of of this fight uh, was right. an extraordinary beat. Um, now, this is something that happens at the end of Rebels two seasons later, yes. 
But yeah, what, he, what he was talking about is that the character of Ezra, who we'll talk about in a second, he he finds this thing called the world between worlds, also known as the most plot device of plot devices. For sure. Through which he's basically able to pull Ahsoka through time and space uh, out of that battle so that she doesn't die. Because uh, it looks does look like Vader's going to kill mm-hmm. her or that she's going to barely survive. But he basically pulls her out. We don't know exactly when she gets plopped back down, but she clearly avoids all of the... She, she is not in the universe during the Galactic yeah. Civil she, War between the Rebellion. She rolled and, a, a and, shortcut, for sure. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, it's the... This is this is kind of the 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 struggle I have with any kind of prequel type thing. Mm-hmm. I'm curious where you are on this. For me, it feels like prequels a lot of the time, but especially Star Wars, like to do a well, you established this thing of there was no others or this was happening or whatever. And then the prequels like to say, how close can we come up to that line while still technically being true? You know, Yoda says there is only one other. He is our last hope. No, there is one other. Actually, there's like seven others. Right. Um, Vader says, you know, when last we met, I was the learner. Now I am the master. Well, actually, there was a couple other times we met where he was technically kind of maybe schooled a little bit. Uh, Look, Um, from a certain point of view, carries a uh, lot of weight in this entire saga. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um but anyways, just to wrap up her story, so we don't know much about what happened. We don't know much about where she comes out. I think this is a lot of what the Ahsoka show is going to go mm-hmm. into. Um, and and by the way, just the Ahsoka novel, it, a lot of it is about her being very. It's kind of that A team story of her being very jaded, her being like, I don't want to help anyone again. And by the end of it, her deciding she's going, she's not going to be a Jedi, but she's going to be a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very good novel, definitely worth reading. So all we know then is that in this new version of the story, she has somehow gotten connected with Luke uh, and is helping Luke to somewhat in the training of new Jedi. Uh, This is, again, set 10 years after Return of the Jedi in the pre-sequels period. uh, And also that she is hunting for Thrawn and that she's looking for... Uh, and and we, we, basically Thrawn had also disappeared in a plot device and had somehow come back, and we'll get to his story. Uh, but but yeah, so that's where we are with Ahsoka. What else do you? What what are kind of your thoughts on on what you're thinking we'll see in the Ahsoka show, or what you don't know about it, or what questions you have? I or I don't feel like we can actually I can actually broach those questions until we talk about the setup in the final season of the Bad Batch because so much yeah. of the Ahsoka show is essentially season five of the Bad Batch, right? Right? Like you mean the, of rebels? I mean rebels. Sorry, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of of rebels, right? Because it, you yeah. know, Ahsoka brings Hera Syndulla and uh, uh, Sabine. Sabine Wren, and uh, and we see the little hologram of Ezra Bridger. We know who has been cast as Ezra Bridger. Like all of these characters are live action, and of course, yeah. we have from Star Wars Celebration. We see the Thrawn, the live action version of Thrawn, is here too. So the Bad Batch is uh, rebels uh, is the setup for. Ahsoka, it right. it is like the convergence point. Ahsoka is the convergence point of all of these these characters. And I I would throw one more in, as I know you're about to go into setup mode again, which is is there a connection in 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 Rebels? We see old, uh, you know, clones. Right. We get a whole storyline introducing old clones into the mix. In uh, Rogue One, we have the this Easter egg of Mark Omega, 
in in the rescuing. So we have this character who is a clone, Omega, not force sensitive, adorable character, wonderful, wonderful character, who and and I'm wondering if there is any insight into how that character plays into these other larger stories, knowing how close Ahsoka is to all of these clones. So I'm not sure what's happening with the character of Omega, who, by the way, is a character who's introduced in the Bad Batch <clears throat> uh, specifically. But certainly Ahsoka's connection with the clones has always been a very important part of her character and I think will continue. And... There's a bit of recent press knowledge that might shed some light on it that I'll talk about in a second. But to, just to go further on that, mm-hmm. as part, uh, as I said, because one of the things throughout military history has always been this struggle of that as a commanding officer, according to most military doctrine, you're supposed to both love your soldiers and care for your soldiers and, and like be their protector, but also be willing to say like, okay, well... If I send this division forward, they'll get annihilated, but all the other divisions will be able to attack from the other side. And so I, basically, you have, you have to be willing to sacrifice the lives of your soldiers and put them into harm's way and things like that. And in the Pong Krell, we get a wonderful illustration of how that can just go really dark and really bad. Uh, that's an arc in the Clone Wars of a, a Jedi general who goes, who goes bad. Um. But the point being that, so I think one of the, one of the, to me, one of the most brilliant parts of Palpatine's plan is that he, he realizes that the Jedi empathy will fall apart if they are forced to be military leaders. And so by creating the Clone Wars, he basically puts the Jedi in an untenable situation. And that part of why Anakin becomes so vulnerable is that Anakin cares more for the clone they all care for the clones but anakin will do more to like protect the clones rather than risking them uh than any of the others and ahsoka somewhat caught in the middle but ahsoka does have this wonderful connection with the clones as well particularly rex and a couple of the others rex being uh uh for again for those who've only seen the movies remember commander cody is the person who works most with obi-wan uh, Rex is the one who is kind of the commander Cody to Anakin and his his legion, which is the 501st, which if you ever seen the 501st, uh, you know, cosplayers, that's because that's Anakin's legion of clones who become some of the first stormtroopers. Um, so to anyway, so I think yeah, her connection with the clones is very strong. She is very involved in helping some of the last clones who are still around in Rebels. And if there are clones who have survived through the end of the movies, we know their aging process is significantly aged up. So I think that is one reason to be very curious about will any of the clones have survived to this post-imperial period of uh, the show. We also know, and again, this is something that just Tamora Morrison has made one or two comments that's that's done a huge amount of speculation Tamora Morrison being the live-action actor who played Jango Fett and then now Boba Fett and the mm-hmm. clones in general, he has made some comments about being upset that Star Wars hasn't been using him more. A lot of people have run with that to think that means that we're not going to get any of the clones in the Ahsoka show. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I'm not sure. Um, it does That does beg the question to your uh, – or it, that does raise the question, though, to your point because of the uh, significantly aged up uh, or age, rapid aging process of clones that they could cast Omega as an adult and 
it, w- mm-hmm. it would be an interesting character. And we've just introduced, as uh, you know, again, spoiler horn, um, at the end of the Bad Batch season two, Omega's quote sister uh, we're right. introduced to. So anyway, to your back to yeah. Your, and so Omega is a point. female clone who is who is. She seems to be the way they said Boba Fett was going to have normal aging, not accelerated. She has normal aging as well. So you're right. Yeah, she might be of a normal age. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Um, there's so much great to say about her her character. Definitely recommend the Bad Batch watching it and our episode by episode coverage of it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, let's quickly talk about Rebels. Actually, why don't we switch this around? Yeah. Both because my throat hurts, but also to give different let's people here not to my voice. Why don't you give your understanding of kind of like. Where we are at the end of Rebels. Okay. Where <laughs> we are at the end of... Holy cow. I'm so in bad batch mode now uh, because I've just <laughs> finished watching it that I need to refresh myself on where we ended with Rebels. So Rebels, uh, the final season uh, of Rebels, uh, we have Thrawn, and this is a... And I have not read any of the books, but my understanding is yep. this is essentially Thrawn version two. They have mined the original Thrawn series of books for this character. He comes in as the soft-spoken sort of gentle admiral who uh, is clearly doing something in his head as he's learning, he studies art, um, and and only when he starts taking the art from, let's say, indigenous peoples and using it as weapons of manipulation and destroying their civilization, uh, do we see that he is he is really a bad guy. He is a very, very bad guy, and he has taken a special liking to the rebels, and Harris and Dula in particular, and and uh, he is studying them very, very hard. So at the end of the uh, of Rebels, by the time we get to the end of Rebels, we do have the death of Kanan Jarrus. Kanan Jarrus. Kanan Jarrus, uh, who yep. was the essentially the the Jedi to Ezra. Yeah. Um, he he was a Padawan who, if you remember in the uh, those you've seen the first episode of the Bad Batch TV show, that. The thing that splits the Bad Batch is that some of them want to enforce Order 66, and most of them don't. And it all comes up with this young uh, Padawan who is trying to get away. That Padawan grows up to be Kanan Jarrus. Yes. And uh, so Kanan is a former Padawan. He was never really made a Jedi, but he gets made a Jedi through the course of the show. And he's one more of these who has... um, He's the kind of Jedi who Darth who uh, he's the kind of Jedi who Mace Windu and Yoda would hate. Um, yes. but, I mean, Yoda Ghost Yoda supports him, but I mean, he is for all intents and purposes married. He is deeply in love with Hera Syndulla and deeply attached to her. Her him and Hera, who's this, uh, one of the best pilots the galaxy has ever seen, if not the best. Uh, they they treat the rest of the crew as their kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has attachments all over the place, and in one of the final episodes, he sacrifices himself to save their lives. Yes, and and that is a lot of what this last season is all about. Because in the end, and I'll, we'll just kind of skipping forward, we have these characters that make up rebels uh, that we just talked about, and th- at the end of the of the final episode, we have uh, Ezra and Thrawn on the bridge of one of the Imperial uh, ships, and. The space, space squid whales uh, are tentacularizing. Plot device number three. <laughs> right? The big plot devices we'll be discussing. <laughs> I'm so glad we can ride space whales. Uh, and they actually uh, are grabbing Thrawn and the the space whales also. <laughs> I can't even. I'm serious. 
it works so well when you're watching it. But to say it out loud, these space squid whales can go into hyperspace uh, the themselves. The name is Purgle. Yeah, uh, Purgle. Yeah. All right, so the Purgles, they can go into hyperspace themselves, and they drag uh, the ship, Ezra and Thrawn, into hyperspace, not to be seen again, as far as we know. Right. They are in the liminal space. Uh, so that is another grand sacrifice. Ezra Bridger, everybody thinks he's, he's you know, I guess everybody thinks he's dead, he's gone. There is mysterious, uh, the mysterious ways yep. of the Force be with him. So, and let's talk about some of these characters here, because, so first of all, uh, if any of you were watching The Mandalorian, and there was a scene at which your friends who'd watched Rebels went crazy, and you didn't understand why, specifically the scene where they're going through hyperspace, and Grogu was watching these, like, shadow of what looked like space whale squid creatures, uh, those were the Purgles. So that was one of the things that made people go nuts, of like, the Purgle are in live action, it's amazing. Similarly, uh, when we walk into a bar where um, uh, Appa, I'm sorry, not Appa from Kim's Convenience, Uncle Iroh, I'm sorry, not Uncle Iroh, Carson Teva, <laughs> uh, the uh, X-Wing pilot slash traffic cop slash helping to run uh, secret missions for the New Republic, um, you know, at the bar that he's hanging out in, one of the people who's at that bar is this large alien-looking blue blue furred creature. That is Zeb, who is uh, one of the most beloved members of the crew of the uh, of Star Wars Rebels. So he, so they're all they're yeah. doing all these little things to set up that all those characters have lasted this long. Well, and, and it was a lovely proof of concept to make sure they could do a Lasat in live action, right? Like that's, Yeah, I didn't think it would I work. didn't either, and, and it plays. Like, oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. So let's now talk about some of these different characters. And Thrawn is perhaps one of the ones who... I, I'm just saying Star Wars fans, especially if you take part in Star Wars discourse online, gird your loins. Because the amount of debate over the character of Thrawn is massive. With a lot of people wanting to see him not as a very, very bad guy, but as a anti-hero. Mm-hmm. And I think and so he gets into all these debates of, but does helping the Empire mean that you're by definition a fascist? And well, what about these terrible things he's doing? And what about the things that he is doing? And I think the bet uh, to me, the whole debate is the whole debate assumes that his character is written as a consistent moral character who has the same character not just like as a person but in terms of like their their character you know the who they are throughout the throughout everything and i think one of the things we all have to kind of wrestle with is that we basically have three different versions of thrawn i'm going to quickly sketch them out yeah. and then we, please ask because, questions because thrawn started it. with the books right that's where we start right okay so the original set of books the extended universe that's now referred to as the legends canon that Disney came in and said, well, we're not going to use that anymore. There were novelizations of the original novel, the original movies, but from the the first new content was a set of books that came out called Air, called the Heir to the Empire series by Timothy Zahn, and it introduced this character of Gen- uh, Admiral Thrawn. Thrawn was an alien, and it kind of introduced the idea that Palpatine. If you notice, the Empire is almost entirely human. Uh, he was an alien who the, the empire, the emperor had had promoted to the highest rank, which is really weird because he's not human. He's Chiss, which is the name of his race. Mm-hmm. In those books, he is utterly brilliant. He has the ability to study someone's art, both the individual, like what art they have in their office, but also their 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 
art as a culture and learn a whole bunch about them and use that in battle strategy. He's a profiler. Now, right? Look, yeah, he's a, he's, profiler. he's a profiler. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to anthropologists who focus on the you know idea of a culture's art who, who always agree that, like, there is a definite kernel of truth that you can learn, you know, about a culture by what kind of art they do or don't favor. The lengths to which he takes it are very much like supervillain getting to do a supervillain mental trick that doesn't actually make any sense, but it's really <laughs> cool, so no one cares. In those books, which are, by the way, as I said, called Heir to the Empire, a phrase you might have heard if you've seen the Ahsoka trailer, very relevant, um, he, he, he is never anything but, I want to bring back the Empire. And he's willing to kill civilians. He's willing to kill uh, other people if needed. He doesn't have a strong moral standpoint. His difference, though, is he does believe that both Vader and the Emperor, like, he... I think the best description is if Vader and the Emperor were chaotic evil, mm -hmm. he's lawful evil. So, for example, for the most part, he thinks Vader was wrong to go around killing subordinate officers who displeased him. But not because he thinks that morally that's wrong. It's because he thinks pretty accurately that's a really bad way to get loyal soldiers to work for yeah. you. Um, so... He's very different, and he's much more soft-spoken, and he's not Vader, but it's not for any of those reasons. So that's version one. Version two is him in the, in the show in which I think he is – I think you described him very well, a very bad guy. Here I think he's even more willing to harm civilians and, and to do harm and things like that. Uh, and once again, his, his motivations are never really discussed. It's just, I'm supporting the Empire. That's never really questioned. Mm -hmm. Then you have version three, which is there's a thing that sometimes happens in movies or in, in novels where a writer has created a villain and the writer falls in love with the villain. And so the writer tries to tell you that the villain is actually a really good guy um, who just made some bad choices. <laughs> and it sort of makes sense. But you're also like, but wait, you also wrote that he did all these terrible things. In the novels, we go back in time and learn that he is, as I said, from uh, this empire way out in space called the Chiss Ascendancy that's kind of out in unexplored space that the empire has sort of known about but mostly left on its own. And that he, that that empire is facing this other huge galactic threat. And in later books it's described. Who knows where it's going to go in this? We'll see. But the point being that... Um, Thrawn, the, most of the Chiss Ascendancy thinks they can fight it on their own. Thrawn disagrees. Thrawn thinks the only way they can fight this is by having the rest of the galaxy united against this threat together. And that having a strong authoritarian government is the only, and a strong military is the only way to do that. So in his mind, the Empire is very much a necessary evil. Uh, and that he doesn't like, that he's very against, but that is required in order to save this existential threat. And some of the things he does in the books, that here we see some of this in the in the Rebels TV show, yeah. um, is, for example, he's very against the Death Star, um, both because of the civilian death involved, but also because he thinks it's a huge waste of resources. But so, if you remember in the 
Rebels TV show, he's always pushing this project of the TIE uh, Interceptors, which are much better TIE fighters, which we do have by the sequel movies, uh, and which we again saw in uh, Mandalorian. They're the, the ones that uh, attacked them at the end of Mandalorian season three. And, and so in the books, there's this whole thing about how he's trying to cut off resources for the Death Star. And he, he doesn't know about the Death Star originally. He finds out and he hates mm-hmm. it. And he's presented, and he in this in the books, he never wants to harm civilians if he doesn't have to. So he's very much a anti-hero who's working for the Empire, but but maybe he isn't, or maybe he's working against, you know. And so he's presented as this very morally gray character who a lot of people absolutely love. And I think he's a great character, but I think that's where we get a lot of this debate about, like, well, is he a good character? Is he a fascist because he works in the Empire, etc.? And it's hard because we have different, you know, I think you kind of have to look at each version as its own entity. Well, it's fascinating and to me, what, I would just say, as an, uh, to insert here, that I, so I drive a carpool, a swim team carpool, and there are uh, some kids in this carpool who are absolute fanatics over Star Wars and for whom Thrawn is their most favorite and important character in the entire Star Wars universe. That, that's fascinating, right? Yeah. Because I think the Timothy, Timothy Zahn is, I think, a wonderful writer. And I think if you kind of ignored everything else and just read those books, and you then, because then I think it poses a fairly central question. Yeah. How much can you compromise and work with one evil thing in order to avoid what you understand is an existential threat to your entire people? Yeah. You know? And that's... I, I, I like the idea of if you work for the Empire, you're fascist, you're bad, end of story. But I think that that is no – and I, I sympathize with that thought, but I think it does not go – I think there's so much moral complexity that goes beyond that. Which is why so and many I, of the books actually dive so deeply into perspective setting that we've never gotten in Star Wars in the yeah. past. And I think Andor actually does an exemplary job of giving us the workaday perspective of the Empire and how – hard yeah. it can be because we're all complex organisms yeah uh, andor did something brilliant in giving us a girl boss character yeah like they introduced this woman character who has you know men around her who are completely incompetent and who downgrade her all the time because she's a woman and so there's a party that's like yeah you go like i want you to see you succeed at your office job yeah your office job is crushing the crushing the rebellion. I don't want to see you succeed, but and and I think at the same time what Andor did is gave us a character like Luthen. And I find that the way that Luthen and Saw Gerrera are talked about to be utterly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Cuz Saw has always been portrayed as the well our heroes are good because they won't cross certain lines, but Saw Gerrera will. Yes. L- Luthen Luthen is presented as a hero. And he is just as morally gray as Saw is, if not more. He is just, yeah. he is, you know, he he throws away 30 rebel lives uh, because it's going to help the overall cause. And I think the thing that makes it so hard to watch Andor is, like, you kind of talked about the original White Hats, Black Hats. Mm-hmm. Andor points out that when Luke climbs into his X-Wing, he's standing on the shoulders of an awful lot of moral grayness. Yes. That is really hard for us to wrestle. Well, and you have to ask the question, right? Would the the uh, rebellion have gotten off the ground were it not for the moral grayness of Luthen challenging the moral whiteness of um, of uh, Mon Mothma? 
right? right. Like had that not had that challenge not existed, would yeah. would we have a rebellion? And I my argument is no, we would not. Somebody has to to had yeah. to be willing to challenge to the point of loss of life because of the scale mm-hmm. of the of what they were attempting to fight. And and that goes all the way through to I think Andor is the perfect character for this, and I think it all start. I think this level of exploration, it, it start, Clone Wars and 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 Rebels did some of it, but to me, the moment that it really opens this door is in Rogue One. Yes, at the beginning of the movie, when Andor murders in cold blood the person who's helping him, because if he doesn't, he's almost definitely going to get caught, and and so literally. Luke doesn't get to blow up the Death Star unless Andor kills that man in yes. cold blood. And, like, I, I I think you can then say, well, well, but there should have been another way he could have done it, blah, blah, blah. But in the trolley, like, classic trolley problem. All mm-hmm. the people of every other planet after Andor on one side or the guy who he kills and those 30 soldiers. And, and I say that not to say that, therefore, I think it's clear that he's right. It's that I... To me, that's what's so good about these stories is that it's it's hard to know. Yeah. And and yeah, I so I, I think Thrawn in the books is fascinating. I do I don't know the, the kids in your and I'm sure it's not your kids in the slightest. Um I do think that there is a fascination in young men and young boys with the badass morally gray characters. And sometimes we don't want to see quite the moral grayness. And yeah. so when people talk about like Anakin, it was like people who say it was not Anakin's fault at all, or you know, like the Riddler and the Joker are totally misunderstood. And I think a lot of that attitude sometimes goes into Thrawn did nothing wrong or Thrawn did what he have to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, I think I'd be very curious to hear as we see Thrawn what what the kids you're you're, you're well, hanging out with. Well, and I'll about. challenge that assumption, young boys, young men. I we have to remove the gendered uh, conversation there because oh, these right. are young women who and mm-hmm. when they cosplay, they cosplay as as Sith and Dark Side. Isn't yeah. that fascinating? Yeah. What a, what yeah. a turn a decade makes. I mean, I think, but I, yeah, I think it's like I mean, there's always been a fascination with you. Sure. You know, like I think that. Uh, Villains are sexy. Villains are, villains are a lot more so interesting. Sexy. Villains, and that is nothing. I say that nothing to do with gender. Yeah. Um, the villain who's introduced in uh, Clone Wars is a woman named Ventress. Who um, you want to talk about screwing with the sexuality of a whole generation of young people, right. boys very much included, but not only boys. There's a scene where she stabs someone with her lightsaber, and as he dies, pulls her to him and kisses him. Yeah, and it's just like. The, this is a kid's yeah. show? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> There's a lot of 25-year-olds figuring out yeah. things they like and remembering that, that, that episode. Yeah, um, for sure. But yeah, no, thank, thank you for correcting me on that assumption, because uh, that's definitely yeah. very true as well. So, so anything about Thrawn you want to ask about? Well, I, uh, the, the Thrawn, so I, you know, I, I feel like I understand the complications of Thrawn and the fact that that so much of Thrawn feels like it's been retconned. Do we have any indication uh, of the direction of Thrawn? Are we going to get a V3 Thrawn uh, as an adaptation from Rebels? Uh, Are you hearing anything? This is why I keep mentioning that phrase, heir to the Empire. Because, first of all, Timothy Zahn has been paid as a consultant, and we don't know exactly in some way. It might be that he was brought in later, but I think w- one of the concerns that people have had is that Star Wars has treated its authors quite badly. I yes. think it's very true. 
For example, in Tales of the Jedi, which is a clear ripoff of the story that the author of the Ahsoka novel wrote, she didn't get any credit whatsoever, mm-hmm. and she wasn't used as a consultant. Timothy Zahn has, and Timothy Zahn's been very vocal about that. He's been brought in as a consultant in some way. And so on the one hand, I feel like we are going to get a lot, we might get some of that background of him. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, and, and on the flip side, though, we have two things that are straight out of version one. First of all, as I said, in the Ahsoka trailer, she says the words, I'm looking for Thrawn, the heir to the... She says the word, she describes Thrawn as heir to the Empire, which is the title of those original series of books. Yeah. That cannot possibly be a coincidence. Not a coincidence. So to me, to me, that tells me we're going to get a lot of his story. And... Uh, his story involves a, a a force user that I'll get into in a second. Um, the other thing, though, is that in Mandalorian, in that Shadow Council, one of the people introduced is Captain Pelion. And Captain Pelion is in the uh, original set of novels. We never get anything from the point of view of Thrawn. Thrawn is always treated as kind of othered. Mm-hmm. Pelion is the Imperial captain who was kind of leading things up until the Grand Admiral came. He, he's Thrawn's second in command. And so we learn all about Thrawn from the Imperial perspective through Pelion. So to me, those are two very big signs that we're going to have a lot of the story of the original books. Fantastic. But if we're going to get the original story of the original books, but with the some of the other stuff uh, all thrown in, who knows? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that gets to, I believe you actually, we actually had a question from uh, someone on the True Story Network. Do you want to tell us what that question yeah, was? Yeah, well, I, I would love to tell you what the question is, but I uh, can't, I don't know that I will be able to artfully pronounce the name. This this comes from actually <laughs> uh, fellow uh, Marvel Movie Minute alum, Kyle Olson, who is also very excited about uh, uh, the uh, evolution of Star Wars here. Uh, what do you think about Joris Sabauth uh, and when Joris will show up? So Joris Sabauth is, and I get, no one has any idea how to pronounce the name because the name has never been spoken in any Star Wars media okay. that I know of. It's only just been written. It might be in a, um, a book on tape or something. Mm-hmm. Joris was introduced in those heir to the uh, heir to the Empire books. Um, the idea is that he was a Jedi during part of the last parts of the 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 new republic, the old Republic time, and that he and a number of others were on a mission called uh, um, I can't I can't remember the name of it. Outward Outward Bound. I think it's the Outward Bound flight, which was an attempt to basically go rescue far off into the depths of. Uh, lost space. Um, in the original set of novels, th- those Jedi were all killed, but somehow some genetic material, probably by the Emperor, uh, but some part of their genetic material was kept, and Joris Kaboth was cloned. And that one of the first things that Thrawn does is he finds that clone, and, 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 and he has some great conversations with Pelion about how Using the Force is an essential part of what helped the, the Empire to be so good at battle, but that, that it should be a tool instead of leading it. Because when it's in control, that led to the good... He basically is very... He's like, the empire, the Emperor put himself and all of his best leaders onto a half-finished battle station. That was dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he talks about all these things, that the, and that his obsession with Luke Skywalker basically cost the Empire the war. Right. Which I think is a fairly accurate statement. Um... 
And so in the books, Thrawn has this power struggle with Kaboth throughout the books where he's trying to basically use the use him as a tool without letting him take control. And some of in the end of the book, some of Thrawn's hubris is that he thinks he can control this guy. He can't, and this guy kind of takes over. And so we do get a you know great lightsaber battle between Luke Skywalker and and this guy shooting Force lightning and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. That's the original set of books. In the newer set of books, uh, the newer set of Thrawn books, particularly in the Disney canon, uh, the same mission goes out, but what they're doing is going to explore Chiss space. The space that Thrawn and his people are from. Right. And that it is his people and him specifically who destroy that ship. So that opens up all... Co- I, 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 one of the things I have loved about... Well, one of the things I have loved about a lot of the new series is, frankly, I'm really interested in what happens when Jedi aren't around. Because Jedi Ugh. are just... Jedi and Force users take up so much of the plot that it's kind of dull... But on the other hand, you kind of need someone for Ahsoka to swing a lightsaber at, so there's probably be some Force users running around. Okay. I think the possibility that since Thrawn and the Chiss were the ones who stopped the outbound flight, that either A, he actually has Kaboth, and Kaboth is going to be there, or B, as we know, as, as we learned at the end of The Mandalorian, one of the things they've been really wrestling with is how do you clone Force users? So it may well be that the attempt to clone Kaboth is the next evolution of the attempt to clone Force users that we're going to see in Ahsoka that, again, is leading up to what I think is the worst mistake that Star Wars has ever made since we learned that Dooku was secretly working for Palpatine, namely the whole Palpatine coming back. I hate that, but it is canon. And so I think we're going to get, if we get Kaboth, I don't know if we will, but if he is, I think it's going to be that him being cloned is one more of this evolution. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end of, of season two of The Bad Batch, they end up in that cloning facility, right? So there's yet another yeah. data point that that yeah. puts these clone characters, in, in particularly important ones, Omega, in this cloning facility. I feel yeah. like I uh, you said something, uh, Force users swinging around lightsabers. I can't believe we've talked for an hour and 15 minutes and not once said the words Darksaber because we do now have non-force wielding uh, uh, users using lightsabers and not just the Darksaber, right? Sabine purportedly is carrying Ezra Bridger's green lightsaber uh, in Mm -hmm. in the uh, Ahsoka show. So is this an effort to... Uh, allow us to have cake and thus eat said cake? We have non-Force users using the coolest tool in the universe? I think it's going to be very interesting because, and and Mandalorian, I think, did a good job exploring this and has been explored more in some of the books. But there's always been this question. I, I think the idea has always been that any person can just turn on the sword. You know, Han Solo used a lightsaber to cut open the Tauntaun mm-hmm. to keep Luke warm. Um, but he never chose and, to carry it as a mantle. He never chose right. to keep it. He never chose to keep it. Um, and in The Mandalorian, again, introduced it. Because firstly, just from a physics perspective, like anyone who's ever like tried swinging around a cardboard tube and pretending it's a sword and then actually swung around a sword, the physics are different. Mm-hmm. The weight is different. 
and so part of the idea has always been that in order to properly use it, you need the attenuation with the force to sort of have that, you know, better understanding of where it is in time and space. And also that you have this physical connection with the, the, the you have the spiritual force connection with the kyber crystal that's in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the novels in the, the Disney canon, many of which are fantastic, by the way. Um, I think there is some good writing in the extended universe. I, I do think a lot of it is schlock, mm-hmm. forgive me. Um, certainly, it is almost entirely written by white men. And I do think that that, that shows. That shows, uh, many of whom are white men who don't know if they've met a woman in their in their lives because the women, some of the women characters are great, some of the women are, are written really badly. Mm-hmm. I love the Darth Bane books, but every woman in there is a femme fatale, and it's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a lot of the newer novels are written by people of color, are written by women, are written by queer people, and combinations thereof. Um, but and one of the things that's really explored though is this idea of like what, why is it that a, a, a force user is the best person to wield a lightsaber? So I think it's been pretty clearly established that a a force user is going to be the best at using a lightsaber, but that, yeah, anybody could use it. And what Sabine is doing with it, I think, is a very interesting question that we don't know yet, whether she's carrying it as a reminder of Ezra, um, uh, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, one thing that's been said a lot is that the Ahsoka show is very much supposed to be a continuation of the Mandalorian and Bad Batch and most of the Mandalorian and Boba Fett and all these shows. Now, from a filmmaking perspective, can you tell me what is the special thing that, there's a little bit of putting you on the uh, spot to know if you've noticed this before, Um, a particular filmmaking technique that happens at the end of three movies in Star Wars, namely A New Hope, uh, Force Awakens, and uh, Phantom Menace. So the the first of all three trilogies. Something happens at the end of those episodes. Are you talking about? Yeah. Are, are you referring to like the award ceremony type thing? Or I, I'm not no, sure. No, it, it, it's it's the very last shot of each one of them. Oh dear! What is the last shot of a New Hope? How do I not remember this? I've talked about it at length. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. So in all three, it pans down to just a circle and then goes black. Oh, okay. All right. At the end of The Mandalorian, season three, it panned to just that circle on Grogu and then went black. Interesting. And apparently one thing that was discussed at uh, Celebration this year was the idea that, so that's always supposed to be, that's the end of part one of a trilogy. So I think the thinking is Boba Fett, Mandalorian are part one, Ahsoka and maybe one or two other things are going to be part two. And then the movie that Filoni is making will be part, part three, three, the finale. So all this is clearly tied together. And part of why I bring this up is a big part of Sabine, who is the character in, she's a Mandalorian. She has a very deep history with Mandalore. Um, and she's the one who quite literally gives Bo-Katan the Darksaber that starts all the stuff on um, in the Mandalorian. Well, and we should say so, the dark saber is an avatar of leadership for the Ma- for Mandalore, who we he he, right. he or she who wields the dark saber, wanted in battle, and therefore is the one who should be followed as the leader of the Mandalorian right. peoples. And, and, and kind of, I think the, the brilliant pl- plot line of um, Mandalorian season three is Bo-Katan starting thinking she only is a leader if she wins it in battle. Mm-hmm. And by the end, she's proven herself to be a leader without it, and thus she's given yes. it as a sign of leadership. Well, and part of the, the lore of the Darksaber, too, though, when we talk about the attenuation with the Force in order to wield it, was that the Darksaber for 
he or she who has not earned it is heavy. <laughs> right? There's a whole yeah. great sequence where Din Djarin is is actually trying to fight with it and he cannot because the thing weighs too much. Yeah. And I think part of that is supposed to be, it's again, is that attenuation to the kyber crystals. Mm-hmm. And so there are some who argue that it's just about being a better fighter. There's some who argue that it's about being pure of heart. There's some who argue that in in a, you know, the force becomes the most hand wavy mystical thing you've ever had. That even though none of them are force users, that the kyber crystal attunes itself to the person who deserves it. Um, <coughs> who knows? Whatever, yeah. Uh, hand wavy. We, we discussed quite a lot of the hammer and he, he whoever, who shall wield the hammer, etc. Yeah. Um, I will just point out, though, that so the whole point of the Darksaber, it was created by a Jedi, the only Mandalore who's been a Jedi. But then it became the symbol of leadership. And it was this example of a Mandalore you know, a Mandalorian who could use the Darksaber. Mm-hmm. Again, created by a Force-using Mandalorian. Right. We now have another Force-using Mandalorian. In Grogu. Grogu. Right. Grogu, at some point, if he were a Jedi, would have to find and create his um, lightsaber. The kyber crystals inside that thing probably are still good, or at least are saleable. Sure. I think there's, I don't know if we're going to get this, but I think there's a universe in which Darksaber 2.0 is recreated and Grogu wields it. And using Grogu as a unit of measurement, that Darksaber is like three and a half Grogu's. And so it would have to be be shortened. (laughs) It would have to be shortened, but certainly we know that smaller uh, sabers exist. Yoda had a smaller saber. Yeah. Yoda has a smaller saber. Ahsoka has. like, if any of you have seen the fighting style where you you have kind of like a dagger yeah. for blocking or a short sword for blocking and a long sword for attacking. That's Ahsoka. That's, Ahsoka has, yeah, a shorter lightsaber and a longer Brilliant. lightsaber. So, yeah. Um, okay. I know we're, we're getting uh, slightly long in the tooth, but I have one more, one more question for you yep. ab- about how things interact. And I know that the timelines are a little bit off, but I'm curious your take on the, uh, the current slate of games because we have we're we're as we record this we're on uh, effectively the eve of the release of the next uh, uh, f- uh jedi mm, the sequel to jedi sequel fallen to order. jedi fallen order um and uh the cinematic trailer for the old republic has has dropped um and i'm curious your take on how the games interact with in around outside of universe so they have made clear that these newer games are part of the canon. And so, for example, Jedi Fallen Order is about uh, yet another Jedi, a Padawan, who survived Order 66. Order 66. And to the great frustration of many, but also the great love of many, uh, there's a number of the, the planets that they visit in Bad Batch Season 1 are also planets that are visited in the video. Dathomir. Big one. Dathomir, yeah. Da- Dathomir is a big yeah. one, and Dathomir comes from um, the uh, uh, Clone Wars, because that's the home right. world of the Night Sisters, <laughs> who I would love to see live oh, action. So um, much. And you want to talk about the the, the uh, young girls going crazy over Sith. Yeah, uh, right. Dark Sith. Well, what I love most about the, um, and people of all genders, to be sure, but uh, the cosplay, if nothing else, one thing I love about the Dark Dark Sisters, the Night Sisters, they are dark side users who are not Sith. Right. And I, that's something I really want to see explored a lot more in the Ray movies is what happens when we get outside of the Jedi-Sith binary mm-hmm. and get to talk about like other, because ver- to, to some extent, I think like, 
and and this is a bit of a tangent, forgive me, but I think this is kind of what we're talking about with Kanan, with Ezra, with Cal, uh, the, the main character, or Cass, Cal, I think it is, the main character of uh, Jedi Fallen yes. Order, is, and even with Rey, you have Jedi who have attachments. You have good side force users who are able to, you know, it's kind of like the, okay, if the sin is, you know, sexual impropriety you know some some people will say so therefore you should never even like be alone in a room with someone of the opposite gender or whatever the jedi of the time of the fall of the republic are that like super 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 strict the high republic books have been telling us that there used to be jedi who were basically Mm f-boys for all intents and purposes who were like yeah i can have no strings attached sex i just can't like connect at some point right right um and that gets them into trouble too. But the whole the, the point being that the strictness to the doctrine and the rigidness of it that we have by the time of Yoda and Mace Windu has not been true for all of Star Wars, and so it's very possible that we're going to get more of that. Uh, we're going to explore more of that in the Ray movies and going forward, which I think is so fantastic. Right? We're having we're we're in we have only experienced a slice of time where. We didn't even, it's like a fish swimming in water doesn't know that it's surrounded by water. We've been watching Jedi and Sith from the perspective of dogma, not knowing that dogma didn't exist at one point around these. these Or it was different. Or it was different. Any religion. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, And and I think think that's why uh, the High Republic books are so good. Strongly recommend them. The Acolyte TV show is going to be based on the High Republic books. We didn't even get to that. Mm -hmm. We'll do that in another episode coming up. Uh, But so... But I think all that's going to be super relevant. But to answer your question, um, I will first just say that I, as someone who doesn't play many video games, Jedi Fallen Order, if you enjoy complicated hand-eye coordination platform-type video games, is apparently very good. I, I, was, I will confirm that. I played the whole thing, and I loved it. Okay. And, and I would say it gave me great hope that they brought Cameron Monaghan, the, the actor who plays Cal Kestis, uh, it at the celebration in London this year, like he had a whole thing. He yes. gave away his smock. It was it was awesome. So yeah, the, it, my only frustration. I am not as good at video games. I'm not as good at hand eye coordination. Mm-hmm. So my frustration that I had to be good at hand eye coordination to learn a Jedi story was very frustrating yeah, I, yeah, to yeah, me. I get it. And I had to just my wife just I had to be like here, please play this game for me. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the point being, yes, I think that those game and. Uh, oh, and the connection was going to make not only Dathomir, but in that he also goes to kind of like a planet where everything is being scrapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that planet is also where they go at the end of Bad Batch to get the chip out of uh, a Wrecker. Yes. And so <clears throat> there's a big connection. Yeah, I think those games are very much going to be um, canon. I think in um, uh, one the game that I think there's, there are a couple of Battle Squadron games where we learn more about the... What happened to the Imperial troops immediately after the death of the Emperor and the Battle of, of Endor? Because a lot of them didn't surrender. They kept fighting. And through that game and also a game called Squadrons, which if you enjoyed, like, if, if uh, of our age, if you ever played X-Wing or TIE mm-hmm. Fighter as a kid or you enjoy any kind of, like, flight simulator type game, Squadrons is a great game for that. You get to fly any ship you want either it's side. It's wonderful. And, and my understanding, I haven't played it this way, but uh, my understanding is that it does work with PlayStation VR 2, so you can actually be in the cockpit. Uh, oh, that's which awesome. Which seems fantastic. Um, but but the point being that in those games we get introduced to a number of characters who have been significant. Um, one of which, who's then been further introduced in the books, is a character named uh, 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 I think it's Admiral Sloan. 
Uh, I think her name is also, I don't think it's Ray, maybe Rex. I don't remember exactly what her first name is. But she's a woman of color, and she is one of the main, like, of this struggle for power. She's the one who leads one of the biggest factions of imperial power immediately after the fall of Endor. Um, she's one of the people who's involved with the whole struggle for power that we saw in the Shadow Council, and she will eventually become. She's eventually one of the people who will win that struggle for power, uh, and probably thus defeat Thrawn, uh, or or emerge even more after Thrawn is defeated in whatever way is going to happen. Uh, and she is the one who is uh, helps. She is one of the ones who helps found the First Order. Okay. And so she and a lot of her stories was first introduced in some of those video games. So, yeah, I think they are they're doing something very ambitious, you know, like the MCU and DC and some of the others have always said we're inspired by the stuff on the page. But we are we are a complete universe. You don't have to watch anything that's not on screen to fully understand this. Mm -hmm. I think Star Wars is doing something really brilliant in that they're trying to say. All the stuff on page and even on video game is canonical, but you can watch just the stuff and still get it. And uh, Ashley Coffin, who's my co-host for a lot of the coverage, including all the coverage we did of uh, Mandalorian, she hasn't seen any of the animated stuff. She hasn't played the video game. She hasn't read the books. And I loved getting her perspective because she was still able to enjoy every bit of Mandalorian. So I think so far, Star Wars is kind of doing a master class of... You can just watch the high-profile stuff and enjoy it, but if you've read the books, if you've watched the old shows, if you've played the video yeah. games, you'll catch all these Easter it's eggs. It's possible to be a completionist. Yeah. yeah. How well they're going to hold that balance into the future, I don't know. Because I of all the shoehorning, right? We've already talked about right. it. Like, they're bending the will of of our, you know, acceptance of verisimilitude, right? Like, there's only so much I can well, handle. Because, like I said, I don't... There's so many plots that I want them to focus yeah. on, and they only have eight episodes. But to give us a story about Sabine and not have her comment on the fact that, like, she was very involved in the, the fall of Mandalore, and now Mandalore has been fixed. Mm -hmm. and, and, like, how is she not – how are we not going to have an episode where she and Bo-Katan hang out for an episode right. or she goes back to Mandalore? For sure. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's it's. – I'm very excited about it. I'm very – I have a lot of consternation, but uh, I think – there's a lot of great storytelling still to come. Well, it I I love it. I'm I'm an enthusiastic supporter, and I there were some dark times for my own republic mm -hmm. <laughs> where I was yeah. not as looking forward to some of these things. But I think what's what's the 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 most fascinating thing that as I look inside myself, what is it that keeps me interested or and has brought me back into so much Star Wars lore and interested in the small screen? It's the animated properties. Right. They have yeah. been so much fun. They make me feel like a kid again. And w yeah. what what possibly could be better than that? Yeah, I, I think they've really done incredible things. And I, I like I said, the fact that they got Zeb right tells me that I have because one of my first thoughts is why don't you just keep it all animated? Cause it's so hard to do yeah. live action. I also think animation gives you a thing of. You know, one of the complaints I think people have is like, well, if this show is called The Mandalorian, why do we spend so much time with Bo-Katan? If this show is called Bo Boba Fett, why do we spend so much time with The Mandalorian? With Ahsoka, like I said, you might have an episode that just Sabine goes back to Mandalore. In animation, 
because you're using all voice actors and it's much less of their time, it's much easier to have, like the Clone Wars and Rebels were ensemble shows Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is hard to do when you have big profile actors. Um, But I hope they can pull it off because I think that they, there's, there's really some great stuff out there. For sure. So we'll see. Uh, Are you going to play the new, the new video game? Uh, It's pre-ordered. Okay. Absolutely. Well, it's going to automatically I download. I, know, <laughs> I think I know what episode you're signed up for next. Because then, uh, if you actually play it all out, and I might, uh, Riki Hayashi, another one of our regular guests, he might play it all out as well. Uh, I don't know what his availability is, but I might get one or both of you on, and I'll just watch the cutscenes uh, on YouTube. <laughs> okay. And we can just do it that okay. way. Okay. So. All right. Well, Pete, thank you so much for being a guest on this. Um, as I said, this is part of. Um, I have loved everything I've done with Stranded Panda Network. I'm staying friends with all the people in Stranded Panda. They're great podcasts. Please check them out. But these podcasts that I run, this and Superhero Ethics, have moved over to True Story. Uh, We're still in the technical process of making it all happen, but uh, I'm going to be working a lot with Pete and with Andy and with Kyle and a lot of the other great people over there. So why don't you come on, Pete, and tell us more about, like, what is True Story and how people can find it and what are the things they'll find there? Well, True Story, uh, you can find us at True Story FM. Technically, it's T-R-U-S-T-O-R-Y, no E, but if you type True Story with an E, it'll get there, too. Um, And it's .fm, not truestoryfm.com. Right, truestory.fm. And, uh, you know, we we do a mix of shows. Uh, Many of our shows are, are shows that we produce for our business clients and we help them tell their stories in in their own uh, wonderful ways and so uh, you know you'll you'll see as you look through two story there are top half of shows are all content shows related to uh, the work that we do with our with our clients and then we do a whole lot of shows around um, you know entertainment as you keep scrolling we've got uh, the cool time dice hour we've got a role-playing game um, uh, the uh, bunch of movie shows we've got a show that is entirely dedicated to drinking game with the TV show supernatural um, uh, we've we've got just a lot of stuff going on. In fact, I, uh, of interest, perhaps, uh, if you're a, a movie lover, Andy and I just interviewed the uh, complicated character that is Dr. Uwe Boll, uh, who is known for uh, directing a lot of video game adapt- adaptations and is widely regarded as one of the worst directors of all time. And uh, he came on a, a show that we do called Movies We Like to talk about his love for the film There Will Be Blood. And I assure you, he is a more complicated uh, uh, student of cinema than you would expect. So those are the kinds of shows that we do, uh, and we love doing them, and we love just making podcasts. So um, thrilled and, and honored to have you join the family and uh, eager to see what happens next. Yeah, there's so much good stuff to check out there. Um if you follow my stuff, you probably you may have heard me on the Marvel Movie Minute. All their stuff is great. They've been doing episode by episode cover, minute by minute coverage of Avengers, which I'm scheduled to get on mm-hmm. and talk about at some point soon. But so many other great people have gone on. Uh, on there, the next real podcast. Uh, every now and then, they put out a request for uh, you know, hey, what are more things we should comment? I am now three for three of suggesting films they should watch, only to have Andy. <laughs> Uh, do his best to not sigh in exasperation as he says, Matthew, if you listen to all of our old episodes, you'd find we already did that. The, uh, yeah, um, the expectation that you've listened to all of our old episodes is, is <laughs> it should it is unfair because that show has, you know, as many episodes as it does, it, it's absolutely uh, understandable. But. Well, but one thing I recently found out is because I recently did the, um, you know, art school nerd thing of I watched Seven Samurai and then immediately watched Magnificent Seven. And suggested that as a back-to-back. In fact, you guys actually did a whole series on the Seven Samurai f- school of, of, of films. There are a lot. A, Seven Samurai had a very big influence on a lot of things. So I'm looking forward to listening to those episodes. 
I'll also say, am I correct? I've also been a guest on the Totally 80, Totally Awesome 80s podcast, which has also joined the family recently. It, it has. Uh, that, uh, Chrissy Lenz is uh, our dear friend of the network, and uh, Chrissy has uh, both the Most Excellent 80s Movies podcast and Gank That Drank, and that's the Supernatural Drinking Game podcast. Most Excellent 80s Movies podcast she does with the filmmaker uh, Nathan Blackwell, and they're fantastic. He, uh, uh, They talk about you know their favorite 80s movies just 80s movies through the lens of how well do these things hold up and you know are they still great movies or uh, let me assure you Teen Wolf is not (laughs) (laughs) so those are the kinds of things that they talk about really really fun I I got to go on there and talk about Risky Business and how as a 16 year old I watched Risky Business and was like this is so cool Tom Cruise is living this cool awesome life and then watching it as a 40 year old I was like oh this is a dark commentary on yeah. all the things. The, the fact that I enjoyed this as a 16-year-old, this movie is actually talking about all the reasons that that's toxic and wrong and bad. Yes. And it really holds up and it's really good. Yeah. Um, in a way that a movie that gave us Tom Cruise dancing in his underwear in a very enjoyable scene, uh, you don't expect it actually has that much depth to it, but it really does. For sure. For sure. And did wonders for uh, Joe Cocker, I think, too, at that uh, at the time. Yes. Right? Old-time rock <laughs> very and roll. Very much so. Uh, so. Well, Pete, thank you so much uh, for being a part of this. Uh, and definitely, folks, check out all the stories that are happening over on True Story FM. Obviously, for myself, I am The Ethical Panda. If you go to theethicalpanda.com, you'll find all of my podcasts. Apparently, you can also go to, I think by the time this is announced, you can also go to True Story FM and then click on something indicating me. You'll find all my podcasts. <laughs> Most importantly, though, you can find all the ways to contact us. Love listener feedback. Uh, Jenny Huang, you wrote a beautiful email that I keep not getting a chance to mention, which I very much apologize for. We're definitely going to do a feedback episode soon. We've got a couple other great feedback uh, as well. But let us know what you think. What 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 are the parts of the story you're excited for? What what did we not touch on that you want us to touch on? You can find me on Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, email directly, all the things. Would love to hear your feedback. So on behalf of myself, Pete Wright, thank you all so much. We have spoken. Fantastic. All right. Uh, and now for our patrons uh, who stuck around, Pete has to go pretty soon. We had some fun at the beginning of this episode, so most of you are going to get a little bit of a blooper outtake reel. But just as a one last thing I wanted to ask in our uh, segment – Pete, what is if you you because you also are a, a student of filmmaking? I think you've done some filmmaking yourself. Mm-hmm. If you could make a Star Wars movie or TV show, what's the era of the story? Who are the characters? What's the what's the story you would want to tell? Well, I, it's a little bit of a, a cheat because I, I feel like they hit it with the Mandalorian season one, right? This is a this is a frontier thing that takes me as far away from Skywalker's and Coruscant as you could possibly go. Like for me, the ideal mm-hmm. Star Wars story is set in that period, that era, and is also Breaking Bad. Like you know what? It's like mm, two totally yeah. unrelated people trying to do something uh, that that also tells a complex story of. Uh, moral grayness and um so that that's for me i I, those are the those are the tones and textures that really light me up from the perspective of of film Mm -hmm. i i am all about shiny flashy hovery things too like i in terms of the raw dopamine hit but for the story the the that opening sequence of mandalorian season one episode one walking into the bar and you know getting in a fight is uh is that's that's uh, terra firma for me. It it was when he used a door to chop someone in half, 
and my subtitles were on, and the subtitles said thud yeah. <laughs> as a part of his body hit the floor. And it's so funny because you just said what you love is the animation that makes you feel yeah, like a kid. Yeah, isn't that funny? Like, I want the, but you're right. It is. And the fact that they did Andor so well tells me that we can do all yes. of it. And I think that's the thing that I'm kind of... In the same way that with the MCU, we've now gotten, like, you know, Ant-Man was a heist movie yeah. within the MCU. And other things, you know, like, Doc, uh, I am not a horror fan. And so Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is not my favorite movie. But I love that hor- Ashley Coffin is a huge horror fan, and she loves it because it's horror in the MCU. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see them do a horror. I, I, I would just love to see different genres. Like, I think you're right. Yeah. The, the Breaking Bad type stuff. Give us give us more of a heist movie again. Rogue One is kind of that. But give us like a, a straight up heist but movie. You, give us. Yeah. Uh, give us a horror movie. I, give us. I, I think that I, to that end, like we, we talked about my my appreciation of the Favreau Filoni era. And uh, I, I can't say that authentically without adding the trust that they put into Tony Gilroy and team is yes. not uh, should not be uh, under exaggerated because they let him do what he wanted to do. And he is a writer's writer of these kinds of stories to give us this mm-hmm. sort of intrigue spy story that appeals to so many people beyond Star Wars. Right. How many times have you heard that people saying, oh, you don't you're not a Star Wars fan. Doesn't matter watch Andor. You won't even need to know that it's Star Wars uh, to know that it's just a great show. And I think that's really important. Um, You know, I'm also a huge fan of Rogue One, and that's the kind of prequel that I love. I know how it's going to end, but they made me feel something uh, along the way, and they did it in a a sort of uh, grit and uh, texture that really appealed to me. As much as I like the frontier, like, dark and dirty stuff, their final, like, fly into (laughs) Boca Raton (laughs) which everything is so bright and blue and it just looks so so good with the palm trees that's like a cool environment that Star Wars doesn't normally take me so well and it's interesting you saw it that way because I saw it as Vietnam oh that's fair like all the like the little like (laughs) islands and patties like to me and like the fact that they come in in these in these their their spaceships, mm-hmm. but like the way that the people jump out of the sides, it looks like those human you're right, helicopters you're absolutely right. yeah. from Vietnam War movies. Yep. Um, and and yeah, so I, I the, the two things that I will say that I would love to see, and, and these are also kind of book recommendations for you and and the kids you deal with. First of all, in terms of, I think any person can love these, but especially for young adults. Um, there, have you heard of the Queen's Peril, Queen's Shadow, no. Queen's Hope trilogy? It is a series of books written by E.K. Johnson, and they're about Padme and her handmaidens. Oh. And it's specifically, it is the most, like, I, this is a pejor- The best way I can say it is the idiot male fanboys who hate, you know, anti-misogynistic would describe them as girl power books, mm-hmm. and they're the best of that genre I could possibly okay. imagine. Okay, Because a big part of what they're about, it, first of all, it just gives so much more interiority to Padme and her story. Um, but also a lot of it's about how the way they use their makeup and the fashion and the way they portray themselves to be spies yeah. and to be ignored. And and so I'd love to see those books. I think Padme's character really got given short service. You mm-hmm. know, I'm dying of sadness, like I'm an 18th century English novel character. Um, so the Queen, they're fantastic. I recommend them to anyone, but especially young adults, teenagers who want to have more strong women characters in Star Wars. Yeah. 
And the other one is, if you like star-crossed lovers' stories, uh, but not in the rom-com way, in the Romeo and Juliet kind of way, uh, the book Fallen Star. Uh, it's about two young people who grow up on a planet that the Empire brings order to, and so both of them join the Imperial Navy as TIE fighter pilots, because they think, what else should you do? And through their eyes, we come to see all the terrible things that are happening in the galaxy, and one of them joins the Rebellion, and one of them doesn't, and it's just... You get to sit with Imperial pilots who've learned that Alderaan has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And some of them are like, how could we do this? And others are like, well, but no, this means no other planets have to be destroyed. It's justified. If you love moral grayness, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal there, book. I, I haven't read many in uh, Star Wars books, but there was one that I did read, and I can't remember what it was called, but it was a story of these two this, uh, lovers, and one of them was on the Death Star when it was destroyed. Does, does that ring a bell? Oh, I'm, I might um, have to find it. Uh, but it was I, lovely. I, yeah. I, I think uh, I don't remember exactly what that one was, but yeah. uh, there is a ca major character in Fallen Star, the Fallen Star, who was on the Death Star when it was destroyed, oh, but not one of the two lovers. Okay, so well, anyway, this has been a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Matthew. You got to go. We have spoken. Thanks to all the patrons. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>